What's up, fam? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And in this interview, I am joined with Sahil, and he is a super cool dude, and he is a co-founder of Rasa. Rasa is an Indian fast casual restaurant. You know, like like fast casual, you know, like Chipotle or um, Cava. You know, those are like the Hispanic fast casual, Mediterranean fast casual, but they're the Indian one. And I personally think their food is fucking delicious and they're going to take over that space. I am so excited for them. And the interview is full and full of good bits. And the story of him quitting his job was just... um, pretty interesting that's a really that's a really cool journey uh we get into on this podcast but anyways guys uh if you could please leave uh, a comment or a review on the itunes that would mean so much because that gets other people um into the podcast who don't know me or anything about it before so guys uh, without further ado let's get right into it enjoy What's up, guys? Welcome to That's the Angle. <laughs> That's totally not my intro. I just did something different today. It's probably just because it's so hot and drinking a little cold PBR. But cheers, hey, hey, cheers, guys. So today, guys, we are joined with Sahil. Uh, and Sahil is uh, doing really cool things. So he, you own Rasa. You're one of the co-founders of Rasa. And Rasa, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's a fast, casual Indian restaurant. Correct. So I'm uh, I'm the Sa of Rasa, okay. and we're uh, an Indian fast casual restaurant that is making authentic Indian cuisine accessible to uh, to the American audience. And mm. um, we opened about a year and a half ago down in Southeast DC in Navy Yard. And um, yeah, we're, we're really excited to be here, dude. I mean, your place is good as hell. <laughs> like before I even knew about you, I had went there uh, with, with with a girl I was dating, and um, okay, you stole the girl. Uh, uh, no, but, uh, <laughs> but we went there and I was like, dude, this was, this is the best Indian fast cash I've ever had. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank I'm you. like, I'm not even capping cause you're here. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. And like, it seems so well thought out. Like I would not have guessed it was two dudes from DC. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really been our whole lives that we've been working on this. I know that sounds kind of crazy to say, mm-hmm. uh, but quite literally. So my partner Rahul and I, uh, our dads are business partners. So Whoa. they worked together in hotels in India in the 80s. 1985, they moved to DC. Just random. Rahul's dad moves here a month later. My dad comes to the country, same part of America, and they start working at a restaurant together. Mm-hmm. Five years pass, and they say, you know what? Let's do our own thing. So in uh, 1991, they opened their first restaurant, Bombay Bistro. And I was born in 1990, so was Rahul. So quite literally, since we could walk, you know, we've been doing so. Outside of uh, Indian in, restaurants. So, you, so you've, you've been working in like the restaurant industry and everything your whole life. Yeah, I mean, they like they let me get till, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then yeah. <laughs> from there. But yeah, like quite literally uh, our entire childhood, our, our whole lives since I was a year old, we've, I mean, our, it's been such a big part of our family owning Indian restaurants and being, uh, being able to share our culture through our food in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I... Dude, that's so crazy. That's, those are some deep roots. Like, yeah, the, like to have it ingrained in you and then to see what you're doing now, it's like, it makes a lot of sense. I definitely want to unpack that with you. But I want to say this before I forget. This was like such a cool thing I just want to say. I feel like there is a land grab for who is going to be the Chipotle of Indian fast casual right now. And I feel like you guys are on top. Hey, I mean, that's That's, that's a heavy statement too. Yeah, I, uh, I absolutely appreciate it. And and um, yeah, I mean, we we definitely see the Indian fast casual market as something that's growing in the country, and we're really excited about it. Mm-hmm. In that um, 
right now there's a lot more awareness about Indian cuisine in America. A lot more people are trying it. And the way that we view it is the more quality Indian restaurants, Indian fast casual restaurants, and just Indian uh, cultural experiences that there are, that's just going to elevate the whole country's perception of not only the cuisine, but the culture and the people. And there's so much green space right now that any good brand we think is good for the market in general. And then uh, absolutely, like as we continue to grow, as other brands continue to grow over time, there'll be a shakeout and, and we're doing what we can to position ourselves to be one of the, if not the leading Indian fast casual in the country. And um, I mean, I, I believe it. Dude. I mean, like it's Indian food itself is super confusing. Like if it like, <laughs> come from the outside, like it's, 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 there's Definitely. so many spices, there's so many variations. Like it's, it, for my dumb American ass, like I'm, I'm always confused. But the thing that I loved about you guys is that uh, you guys make it simple. Like you make it really easy. Like I've been to a lot of other fast casuals. I'm not going to name any spice six, um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but just like all the other ones, I guess in the area. And I'm so confused every time. But so, so when I went to your guys' place, I was like, Oh, this is so easy. And it's fucking delicious. Thank you, man. Well, and, and so that was like, when we really started, we started with this, how might we question of how might we take Indian cuisine and make it accessible? Cause we knew we had good food. We've always had great food. Rahul's, uh, Rahul's father, Chef Vinod, is just a magician. He's like truly a master of Indian cuisine and Indian cooking. And and growing up, I mean, we grew up in the time where, you know, the association non-Indian kids in school, you know, we went to American public school in Montgomery County. Like the association was thank you, come again from the Simpsons, right? It was like, <laughs> yeah, that's so oh, true. I don't like Indian food. I don't like curry. Burns twice, once on the way in, once on the way out. You know, there was like all of these misperceptions. And here I am like, Yo, you know that tomato sauce you like on your pasta? That's a curry. Like sauce, the word sauce is curry, right? And so there was just so much cultural misunderstanding. And there there were also a lot of Indian restaurants where like if that was my first time trying it, yeah, I probably wouldn't go back. And so, mm. and I didn't really understand that because we were blessed to grow up in a home which had amazing food. And so what we would do is as we got older, we'd start bringing our friends you know, they'd say like, oh, you know, white is, uh, is Wonder Bread. And they're just like, <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they just, don't know anything besides like hot yeah, dogs they, and hamburgers yeah, exactly. probably. Exactly, that's what they grew up with. It's not their fault. And they're just like, hey, look, I don't like, I don't think I'm going to like it. And I'm like, look, you're my friend. Just give it a shot. Tell me what you like. Tell yeah, me what you think. Because it looks different. Like everyone has that notion that it's super spicy and there's, you're just like, it's, it's just way different than anything People in America. People are afraid of the other. I mean, there's, uh, there's a whole subset of the population that's excited to explore and try new things. And there's also a lot of people who are really comfortable in their routines and things that are outside of their normal world are scary. Mm -hmm. And so what we started doing is we would bring friends and just say, Hey, like, what do you like? And let me order for you. And without fail, all these friends would leave evangelized, like to a point where I'm talking, they're coming back for their birthdays with their families, graduation dinners. And then as we got older, like I mean, they wouldn't stop talking about those things. Like, yeah. bro, that one time I had that, like <laughs> that tandoori or something. And there's like, it blew my mind. Yeah. And then like we got older, they started bringing girls on dates and, and you know, it was like, it became their spot too. Mm. And after seeing this happen, cause we went to both Rahul and I went to university of Maryland college park. So that was close enough where we could just take the Metro and keep working at the restaurants. And so, um, as we kept doing that, and bringing more and more friends, we're like, wait, we were right. Our food is delicious. It's just people haven't been introduced to it the, the right way. The education of it. 
like, exactly. like people just didn't know. Right. Like, like that it was like mystifying or something. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of barriers to entry. If you, if you think about the Indian food experience, the modern Indian food experience mm-hmm. today, it's like you first have to find the restaurant often. I mean, there's, there's the hole in the walls and there's the nice restaurant. So if you start with the hole in the wall, first you got to find it. It's not in an ideal location. Then when you get there, you walk in, you've got Taj Mahal paintings on the wall, sitar music's playing. Facts. And then, yeah, you got the white tablecloths. You're greeted with this giant fucking menu. And I'm talking a thousand items, Hyderabadi banging, yeah. Sagmakai, you 100%. know, all this stuff with the bum. Like, if you don't speak Hindi, what the hell is all you're this? You're kind of sitting there, it's like, uh, 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 chicken? Okay, I'm gonna get that one. Like, it's, right. it's just, it's too much. Exactly. And, and it's just, it's, too foreign of an experience for people mm. where what ends up happening is they get their butter chicken, they get their, their sog, the spinach, and they get the non bread and they really just go with their Indian friend once or twice a year. And so that's like the experience on the Dabas. And then if you, uh, if you go to a nice fine dining restaurant, which, which there's a lot of really great ones coming up, not just in DC, but across the country, mm-hmm. they, um, they're expensive. They take yeah. a long time. Yeah. And a lot of them aren't necessarily, very helpful. You know, when you eat them, a lot of people say they eat Indian food like Thanksgiving. You know, they plan for a nap afterwards. Ah, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> actually a big fact. Well, yeah, but then it's like at those nice places you have the Indian guy coming up to you who doesn't speak much English and then you, he doesn't, he's not that helpful. And, and this is just my experience. And then you're just like, okay, uh, butter chicken and everything. It, it, right. it's, it's, it's just, it was just one loop, but what you guys did is kind of like demystify. And just real quick, how long did you spend working at the restaurant? Like, was it your whole life, but, or do you stop uh, at you college? Know, I'd say when we were around 15 or like we were always in and around the restaurants and, you know, we'd go on trips with our dads to different places and whatnot, but, um, properly started working there when we were about 15 or so. And then, uh, I worked there till I was about 21, 22. After I graduated from Maryland, I started working at Deloitte Consulting and I did the Classic consulting thing. And okay. it's funny because we're, we're going to get into okay, that because yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll that's going to be a really good part. I'm, I'm, pl- I'm planning on that. Yeah, I just want yeah, right, everything out the way because that, that's yeah, a yeah, really, so jump, uh, jump uh, oh, no, no, no. That's a really interesting part. Like that is something that I think a lot of people are going to connect with on this podcast. Um, but I really want to say this topic about the, the demystification, the D de- like classifying and demystifying of Indian food, because it feels like there's been a very big embrace of it. Like it seems like everyone's less scared to try it too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel that there's been this huge cultural adoption mm. of just Indian culture generally. I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley or a lot of the Fortune 500 companies, uh, Indians as a group of people, it's, it makes up about 1% of the country. Whoa. But yeah, it's, it's surprisingly small. Yeah. I think there's about 3 million Indians, though that number is growing, and you got 350 million Americans, right? But given the entrepreneurial nature of the culture, as well as just like this very work hard, get a good job, rise in your career mentality. You've got a lot of CEOs of big companies, a lot of people that are rising in their careers, but you're also seeing, uh, in culture. So we've got a lot of Indian movies that in the past three or four years are really starting to come to the big screen. That's so true. It's interesting to look at some of the cultural things that kind of make it more embracing for, for just society in in general. Right. I mean, you've got a lot of comedians, Hassan Minhaj, all these others that are really starting to make it to the mainstream. And it's, it's just, there's more awareness. So it's not Mm. as foreign. It's not as scary. Mm, Yeah. Cause if you were to look at like, like 
Mexican food or Hispanic food, that feels just as normal as like American food to us now. Yeah, Mexican food's American food today. Right? Like, like we've, it's almost, we've almost claimed it in a weird way. And yeah, like, if Stephen Miller and Kristen Nielsen are going to a Mexican restaurant, it's American food <laughs> now, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's like, it's like we've embraced that culture and it seems like we've embraced Chinese food. And then now it's like the next frontier is Indian food. And so it's like within that space, there hasn't really been that fast, casual pioneer. Yeah, totally. I mean, the way we think about it from a cultural adoption standpoint is I see Indian food and culture as about four or five years behind Mediterranean food mm. and culture. So now when you go to the grocery store, I mean, today people take it for granted, but five or seven years ago, like, did people know all about hummus? Did people know? Yeah, tzatziki? hummus did became a about fact. Greek yogurt? Like all of those things are just household things today. You've got all these brands like roti, Kava, Zoe's Kitchen, all these other brands that are huge now. They're across the country. You're so right. But they weren't they weren't household names five years ago. And so we view Indian as one of the next brand. I mean, one of the not necessarily brands, one of the next cultures that is gonna be growing in influence in America. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I never I didn't even think about the Mediterranean. It's like, yeah, Kava is literally the Chipotle Kava. And it's it, it seems like Chipotle has just had such an impact on their food business, like the food game, like this whole fast casual thing is just so insane now. It's, 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 it, I don't know. Like what's your perspective on it? You're in that business. Like what's, what's up with fast casual? Yeah. I mean, so we, we obviously believe in it we think it's the, hell future. yeah, <laughs> we think it's the future of, um, of dining in America and, and there's a lot of good reasons why it's happening. So in, big cities and even in some of the surrounding suburbs, people are just more busy than ever before. You've got mm -hmm. way more dual income households than they've ever been. So you've got both parents that are working and they're looking for quick, nutritious, healthy meals to serve their kids. But fast food clearly hasn't had a, like, a positive impact on the health of this country. And even a lot of the casual dining options, your Applebee's, Ruby Tuesdays, TGI Friday, you name it, chilies that you're seeing all of those crumble right now. That's very true. Because not only are they slower and not necessarily affordable. I mean, if you go, you're going to spend maybe $18, $20 a head. It's slow and they're packed with thousands of calories and all these different meals. Mm. And then on the flip side, your other option is go to a McDonald's or a, a Wendy's or a Burger King or something like that. I where, see what you're saying. That middle has been missing for a while. Yeah. Like where can I, the, the question a lot of Americans have been asking themselves in the hole that fast casual is filling is where can I get, uh, fast, affordable, healthful meal that has flavor. You know, it's like, and there's, there's more nuance there, but really it's that simple question of how can I get something that's delicious, that's affordable, and that makes me feel good. And that is really the hole that fast casual is solving. And we're now seeing from all aspects, uh, fast food, casual dining, and even fine dining, all of those brands and chefs are now migrating towards the fast casual space because that's what consumers you're looking for dude it's so you broke that down so perfectly like like no one a little bit of practice yeah you've been thinking about that for a long time like for me it's gonna <laughs> blow my mind for you this is just like normal everyday thoughts you know yeah. but it's like yeah i don't want to go to fucking applebee's you know if i it's like yeah i mean I'd the whole food good culture in this country is like going under a, a massive shift right now and uh we're, we're so excited to be a part of it was was chipotle the first fast casual like first fast casual uh you know it's it's tricky to, I'd say it's the most well-known fast casual, okay. absolutely. Uh, there's an argument to be made that, you know, if you look at Subway, what's the difference between a Subway and a Chipotle? 
Oh, one is that's a sandwich, very true. the other is a burrito. But Subway the same, the same sort of distribution of the food model, like how they give you the food. Right. And and Subway, you know, eat fresh. They were like the first ones really talking about but, that. But then Subway became unhealthy all of a sudden, right? Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, and so um, Chipotle, I, I think what they did a really good job of was they had a lot more flavor than a lot of the other brands, and they built a brand, and they really highlighted the fact that they were using real ingredients. Mm. And so uh, I think they offered just a unique value proposition that people hadn't necessarily, maybe they'd experienced it, but they hadn't experienced it in that way. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I remember the early days, it was just like fresh, organically sourced, humane and at that time it was like all of a sudden health became a big fad and all of a sudden fitness and it's fitness is crazy right now like fitness is a big yeah. fad like it's almost weird to not work out these days <laughs> have you noticed that it depends which part of the country you're in but yeah <laughs> that's very true that's very true but like it's like they capitalize on the like that whole beginning of of the shift in american mindset towards healthy and like right. said, mcdonald's goes down applebee's goes down because they're not technically healthy or that affordable so you're kind of sitting there like why am i here right and we're also seeing, I mean, one of the things Chipotle sort of started, and then you've got brands like Sweetgreen that's really pushing this forward, is this push to reconnecting with our roots. And, and by that, I mean, talking about the full food system of where is our food coming from? You know, is it coming from these food factories? Is it coming from the ground? How do we think about that whole supply chain? And we're, I mean, just think about how many more farmers markets there are just in DC That's so today true. versus five or 10 years ago. And you're seeing a rise in not only healthy, fast, casual brands, but also just health food stores across the country. And so, uh, I, my hope is that all of this is going to continue and Americans are going to continue starting to think about their food sources how they're consuming food and and what they're putting into their body. Yeah, it's it's interesting that as we've gotten more busy, we started to give more of a shit about what we put into our body. You think it would kind of be <laughs> the opposite effect, right? Like, well, I mean, when a third of the country is is like overweight to a point of obesity, it's it's like a major health crisis. You know, people don't think about it, but how many people are dying from heart attacks, from diabetes, all of these preventable causes that we're just not thinking about. Mm, yeah, all that's just been a big on the forefront of everyone's minds. Maybe that's why everyone's living so goddamn long. Actually, I think that uh, the American, I mean, don't quote me on this, but uh, yeah. if I'm not wrong, I think the actual average American lifespan is decreasing. Really? Uh, yeah, because of you've got the heroin epidemic, which is obviously not helping, and then also the way people are eating. Like, we're in a extremely... It's easy to forget, but we're in a very healthy city. D.C. is very walkable. New York City is very walkable. L.A., all of these big cultural hubs uh, are really different than Ohio and uh, the center of the country. And where so people can't necessarily bike or longboard or get anywhere. As, right, as or it's just it's, not part of the culture or the lifestyle. And, uh, yeah, it's it's like something I have to to check myself on is remembering that the lived experience I have being a DC small business owner is so different than a lot of people in a lot of parts of the country. Yeah. So easy to forget. Are, are, so you grew up in DC, like this area. Uh, yeah. Maryland, Gaithersburg. Yeah. It's so easy to forget. How, yeah, it's G-Berg. <laughs> I never heard that one. Yeah. G-Berg. That's what you guys called it. Yeah, man. It's so crazy to think, uh, it's, it's so crazy to think, um, how diverse like we have it. And oh yeah. It's not like that for everyone. Amir, what are you doing? 
(laughs) 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 For guys who are listening, Amir's homie uh, at home DC where we're recording. (laughs) And sometimes when he has to go bathroom, get out the door, he'll crawl on the table. But he was just crawling and looking at the computer. I'm just so confused. Hey, we look good on the computer. I think uh, think that's what he was checking out. (laughs) Two studs on the screen. I'm just so confused. (laughs) Were, Were you checking to see he was recording or something? Okay, all right. He, rolling. Yeah, maybe one day we'll give him a mic. Rolling. But I mean, so, so getting back to the, um, the diversity point, I was actually talking to a friend about this earlier today of how I feel so lucky to have grown up in one of the most diverse places in the country and really, I mean, one of the most diverse places on the planet. Like my high school was 30% black, 30% Latino, 30% white, and 10% some combination of everything else, right? right? So I fell into that 10%. And, um, and not only was it uh, diverse ethnically, a lot of people think diversity means people of different colors or different races or different backgrounds. But if you got a bunch of people that are thinking the same things that just happen to have different skin colors, it's not really diversity. And so there was such socioeconomic diversity mm. in that school as well. You had a ton of people who had just immigrated to the country. You had people who lived in super high income households from Laytonsville that were the, you know, you had the lax bros all the way to the people that were living in, uh, in really like low income housing. And you'd walk through the, it was kind of amazing. Like you would walk through different hallways and one hallway was the Latino hallway. So you'd only hear Spanish. Dude, that's so true. The other hallway you'd walk through and it's just people getting down to some rap music. The other hallway, it's like, a bunch of white girls, you know, and it's like, yeah, so and, and you have like all the Asian people who always hang out together, <laughs> and then, then like me and my friends who wore like girl pants and shit, and we just hung out in our weird hallway. But you, you know, what was really cool about that uh, that whole experience was, uh, and maybe this was just unique to the school and the grade that I was in, but everyone got along. Yeah. It was uh, it was really odd, but while there, of course, were the individual groups, there was never any like beef between the different cultures. It was actually surprisingly integrated in that way. And, um, I'm I'm like, that's been such a defining part of, of growing up. And, you know, I went to, I went to college in Maryland, which is a really diverse school itself. But when I got there, I was like, damn, my high school is way more. I never thought about it from that perspective. It's not just the color of your skin, but it's actual income levels of your family, which is that, that, that real diversity when you have the kid who's balling and gets a nice car when he turns 16 in high school, then you have like the kid who takes the bus, Knowing his family has a car, yeah. like it's a whole different dynamic. Totally, and 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 building on that, it's like the socioeconomic, but then it's also just the worldview, right? Like, mm. if you have different religions in one place, if you have like if my family believes one thing and I've grown up believing that, and your family believes something really different, if we never talk, there's no understanding, right? But like when you're kids, you're like, oh, you eat that, I eat this, mm-hmm. it's like, huh? <laughs> And I bring up food because that's obviously been that like growing up, that was such a big part of of my childhood of we owned an Indian restaurant and everyone else's dad worked at like an accounting firm or yeah, this somewhere else. And dude, that's so cool. I'm like, I'm so envious that you grew up in like a restaurant family. Like I've always had such an admiration for like the food business and food culture. Like I always, those were always like my part-time jobs. And huh. I, was, I was always like, man, I wish my parents had some well, cool shit. Know, like, that's it's so funny because cool. like I never thought that. Like I was, I mean- it's just what it was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, this is so dope. My dad owns a restaurant. Like now, I feel that way. Like right? na- now, it's like totally a flex. Like, like yeah. if, you, if, you, if, if you were like in high school now, you'd be like, yeah, my parents own a restaurant. <laughs> but like, but like back then, it was like, 
we're we're foreign and we own a restaurant duh yeah it wasn't it's funny like being indian wasn't cool back in the day <laughs> like it was a major negative you know of like but yeah when you're growing up when people are saying thank you come again or right after 9-11 and people yeah. are calling you a terrorist when you're walking through school and you're like one that's a different country but two that's still not okay you know and yeah. like so it's kind of funny now because uh We've gone through this massive shift, which I think is reflective of the, that shift we were talking about in terms of the food as well as the culture. Mm. But it's now cool to be Indian. Yeah, like if you think about things like the rise of yoga in the West, the number of mindfulness and meditation retreats and the number of meditation apps that have come out, the healthful vegetarian kitchery cleanses oh, and all yeah, of the diets so and all, true. all of this stuff like turmeric is the new kale you know God right damn, and even like, i take turmeric <laughs> <laughs> like, you know and like that's just shit that my parents have been doing since i was a kid but it wasn't cool back then and it's so it's it's really interesting to see this massive evolution Whoa. and change in in perception that you just you're breaking it down so hard to just to look at how how much it's infiltrating like our culture american culture how much it's everything's sort of assimilating now you know with like the yoga that's Indian thing the I mean I just want to say Indian food is fucking amazing it's fucking amazing (laughs) I I think like I think besides the lifestyles of what you said like the practices of yoga and the adoptions of everything else but at the end of the day the food just tastes amazing like I think that's one thing behind it is that we're realizing like whoa you can use a ton of different spices and it can still taste amazing like it's like any people have it down to a science, like they're the samurais of, of spices <laughs> and taste. It is some of the most delicious food you'll ever have. Well, I'm going to borrow that the samurais of spices. Are like, <laughs> right? Like that's what it seems like, man. Like it, it, yeah, it just well, blows so, my I mind. Mean, so if you think about it, it's like how old is India as a country, right? True. It's thousands of years old. How old is America as a country? And uh, I mean, Michael Pollan does a really good job in, in his work talking about why American food culture is so fucked is because there's no American food culture. Right. Like that's true. Americans have amongst the worst diets in the world. And a big part of that is we aren't steeped in these ancient traditions where it's balanced meals. Right. Like we are this a beautiful part of American culture is that we're a country of immigrants. But as a result, it's just this melting pot where we haven't created a healthy food culture and Mm. healthy doesn't mean you're eating all of the kale and cauliflower you can find. It just means that, I mean, I mean, and again, everyone has a different definition. I like to think of healthful. And to me, that means having like a nutritious and balanced diet that is well-rounded. Yeah. It's like, it's like a cultural view on how you should sort of eat and like be as a person, like, like, like almost as if, America didn't spend enough time alone to develop its own sort of viewpoint of like how to be a good person or something or how to like be nutritious and stuff like. Right. Like, but we, like, we have like, a very yeah. like exploitative nature as a country. Okay. And, um, and I suppose, you know, like uh, let's take, um, I, I don't know. There's a lot of different uh, drugs that we abuse. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like in Peru, the cocaine plant or coca leaves, right? They have a lot of medicinal uses. We're here, we refine it and we use it to get the max, like derive the maximum pleasure in the shortest amount of time. Mm. And I think that 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 mentality is something we've done in most everything across the culture. And I mean, it's served some really great purposes, but 
as a result, we're just, you know, it's like you're squeezing a fruit just to get the juice, but you're not getting all of the nutrition from the fruit overall. Ah, it's interesting. Yeah, like we just squeeze the goddamn fruit for everything that we do. Right. We just go for what we think is the good part, but you have to have a more more well-rounded, balanced approach. Like we're not thinking about the rind or the actual fruit. <laughs> we're just like, give me that goddamn juice, dog. Like, Yeah. So uh, I think like as a whole, I hope we continue moving towards more holistic living and really thinking about the implications of our actions and how we how we go from that exploitative nature to really living in harmony and balance with not only ourselves, but nature and, and yeah. all of the other beings I, around I us. I think it's like a capitalist n- notion too. the whole exploitative, like because of our capitalist society, it, that's kind of what it is at the end of it. Like in a weird way, capitalism is kind of exploitative. Like you find something good and you make it better so you can make more money or, or you could just make it better to help more people depending on how you look at it. But you have right. to exploit something good to make it even better. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, think about our farming system, right? Like we have all of these animals we're growing in farms and these are more like lab rats or lab animals oh, than God. real natural products or natural animals. And we're not, it's, it's not normal. <laughs> it's just weird. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're putting into our body. So we, we've taken all of these shortcuts to exactly like you're saying, maximize profit, maximize the speed at which we grow and things of that nature. And as a result, we're degrading our, we're degrading our, our lived experience, our bodies and the planet. Is that something you think about at, at Rasa? Yeah, it's, it's something we think about all the time. And, um, we're, and it's, it's an area that we're growing into as well. Like I, I did not know a ton about a lot of the inequities in our food system, and, and I'm still uncovering more and more every single day. And, mm. and that's uh, such an exciting part about being on this journey is realizing now it's weird to say, but now I'm a part of the food system. And so I, yeah. I get to I get to ask myself, Rahul and I, we get to say, like, who are we in like, who are we in this system? How do we want to show up and what I mean, everything you do has an influence on the world around you. So what kind of influence do we want to be? Well, especially when you're feeding a lot of people every day, like it's different to, I don't know. When you own a a restaurant that you're feeding, I don't know, I'm guessing hundreds of people every day. Yo, is that beep your fire, your fire detector? Dude, I'm about to unscrew that thing. Like, I don't know if I can reach it, but like, I'm literally about Dude, to jump so up there. It's so fucking hot in here that it feels like there might be a fire going on. <laughs> no, that's why we have cold beer, dude. Like, <laughs> hey, man, what cheers on that? See, this is like why I love doing podcasts. We can, we can, like, we could just stop it and be like, "What the fuck? This fire detector? Oh my god!" Ah, I just need some batteries or something, or the batteries to be pulled out. One or the is other. Is that gonna do anything? I, oh my god! <laughs> Why am I not talking right now? <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like on mute mode. <laughs> Yo, you gotta put a battery in there. That's why it beeps. That's like a you don't have a battery. Dude, I can't get over the moss on this ceiling. Dude, isn't that crazy? So fucking cool. This is such a cool studio. Yep. No, we can definitely <laughs> see you. I'm keeping this in. This is great, by the way. <laughs> Wait, what are you doing? I think I think I've disconnected it. Did you disconnect it? Well, there's no light on it anymore. Good. All right, cool. If there's a fire in here, we're all going to burn and no one's going to know or hear it. Yeah, this video will be our evidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. 
thank you, Amir. I appreciate that. <laughs> because every time it beeped, I'm like, oh, maybe it'll beep in like 20 more minutes. No, it would beep in a minute. Right. <laughs> oh my God. I can't deal with it. Yeah, we're like just starting to embrace this heat in DC, dude. Like, oh, it's like a constant sweat now. I um I don't agree with really anything that Donald Trump says, but uh DC is a swamp, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely starting to feel like it, dude. <laughs> so fucking hot. God damn. All right, where were we? Uh, we were rambling for a while talking about the food system, culture, diversity. No, but these are some very important, uh, very important facts and angles because I think it plays into everything that you like. You think about and how you approach what you do. Yeah, you know, it's it's it. There's it's. I thought Rasa was a corporate thing. Like I thought it was like, and that's a compliment to me. Like I thought it was a well polished corporate thing. I did not know it was two dudes in D.C. who <laughs> built something that was based off like family recipes and just you know wanting to. I don't know what, why did you end up making Rasa? What's, what's the story there? Yeah. Well, so, uh, when I was 17, I wrote a, a small business plan for an idea very similar to Rasa and, and similar to like kind of relating to what I had alluded to before the, the whole idea stemmed from this, this notion of, I know we've got delicious food and really wanting to share it with the world of and and as I've gotten older and spent more time working in, mm-hmm. in this space and, and what's oddly enough coming up for me now, uh, it's kind of this idea of wanting to be accepted. Whoa! Wow. As as like strange as that sounds, what of do you like mean? your you know the food that is just a part of your family and your life and, and like literally it was what my family did mm-hmm. and is what my family does. Uh, was just rejected mm. right at a very young age growing up. You know, you'd bring Indian food to school. Oh, that smells. What is that? It's not a turkey sandwich, right? True. Yeah. You yeah, know, it, it does. It, it's not Frito-Lay. It was, it was foreign. Like the, the exact, it, it was so foreign people were just turned off or something. Yeah. And, and so there was, there was this, I guess the narrative I've had in my mind for a very long time, which, which is absolutely part of it is that Rahul's dad, Chef Minot, just has this incredible food and, year after year, I saw hundreds of people like change their minds and open their minds. Mm. And, um, and there's something so beautiful about the power of food to open people's minds to new cultures, to new ideas, to new connections with people from that part of the world. I mean, I get, I get really jazzed about this idea of people walking into Rasa, not knowing what it is. Right. And they come down and say, Oh, it smells good. Uh, I know what uh, I know what spiced beef is. I know what tomato garlic sauce. I like green beans. It's got green beans. Uh, let me throw some cucumbers and mango on there. Great. Yeah. You got no fucking idea what kind of restaurant it is. <laughs> and then they sit down. They start eating it. They see, oh, this guy looks like he's someone that's sort of in charge. Let me let me go talk to him. So they pull me over, come to their table, and they they look at me and they say, this food is fucking incredible. Really? What kind of food is this? And I say, oh yeah, it's Indian food. And this guy's just, just jaw just drops because he's wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> and he's thought that he never liked Indian food or really? he's never even talked to an Indian person in his whole life. And that to me is the power of food, right? And now maybe just maybe when this person or, or another person that's not as familiar with the cuisine or culture mm-hmm. is walking down U street and they see an Ethiopian restaurant, they say, oh, I've never tried Ethiopian. I thought I wouldn't like it, but I like the Indian restaurant. So maybe I'll like this one too. Right. Or I've only thought about traveling to the Bahamas because that's where my parents took me. But, huh, you know, I had that 
Indian food. It was pretty good. Got an Indian coworker. I got something to talk to him about. Now maybe, maybe I want to travel. And and to me, the root of all of the dysfunction that we have in our country right now and a lot of the problems we're having globally with nationalism really stem from this root uh, this root insecurity, this fear of the unknown mm. and this this lack of curiosity and this lack of understanding. And so I've been really fortunate to travel quite a bit. I've been to probably 30 plus countries. Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's really influenced a lot about my worldview. And there were so many things, there's so many preconceived notions, despite being a person of color who's half Hindu, half Muslim living <laughs> in America, right? Despite all of that background, there was so, I was so naive. There were so many just notions I had never challenged beliefs I held, which just weren't true. And that I, had I not gotten out of the country, had I not chosen to interact with people who didn't look like me or who had different views, whether political or societal than me, that would have just kept me. It is so easy to stay in your own bubble. And, and I think that in a funny way, food offers us the opportunity to take that very, very, very easy first step. Yeah, like like that guy who somehow didn't know he was in an Indian restaurant. I don't know yeah. how the hell he got well, the no, order of food so and not knowing. It's actually been a pretty, um, it was a pretty intentional design process. So really? we, we initially started by calling ourselves Rasa Indian Grill. Mm. And before we opened, we, we had this long conversation. We decided, you know what, we just want to be known as Rasa. And the reason was while... Uh, majority of the people we know love Indian food. There are absolutely some people who, who we never got to pull into our family's restaurants and order for. You know, there's a there's a absolute segment of the population that is just that may just be closed off to trying this. So we said, all right, we're going to call it Rasa. We've got a beautiful, cool, colorful logo, which I mean, to us represents a lot of the joy and the color of the country. But let's design a store that if you've been to India, you're familiar with Indian culture, Indian food, like, like yourself, when you walked in, you're like, oh, I know this is an Indian restaurant. But we also designed it in a way where if you don't know, you won't know until much later in your experience. So the way uh, we, we yeah. craft the experience is we have these fun swings in the window, uh, a beautiful blue custom door that we had built in India. And so people walk by and say, whoa, this storefront looks awesome. Like, I like swings. This door is cool. Let's check it out. They walk in. It's got really colorful paintings, some cool stuff on the wall. They see people laughing, smiling. They see some delicious looking food that's familiar. You know, mm -hmm. we've got Brussels sprouts, green beans, things that they've seen before. And so they walk down, they, they go through that line, they have that ordering process. And only at the end of that experience, so we actually, while we view ourselves as cultural ambassadors and we're really excited to play that role, one of, we, we've decided or, or we feel one of the most effective ways to play that role is actually by not necessarily leading with it. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So we, we think of ourselves as a great fast casual dining option that happens to be Indian. That's such an interesting approach. Like I, I can imagine how much thought went to leaving that little bit out of the name of leaving out Indian girl because it's like, do you want to be like Nike, we make shoes or just Nike, you know what it is. Like the right. same thing with Ross, same thing well, with every and, other and brand. So like, when we started, you talked about this idea around how we have the opportunity to be one of the, if not the best Indian fast casual in the country. Mm -hmm. And while that is a title we'd be honored to hold, 
I'm much more interested in being one of the best fast casuals in the country mm. because I don't want to limit myself to just being an Indian fast casual. Excuse me for pigeonholing. No, no, no. I, and so, I mean, it's something that we think about a lot though of, mm. I, I never, as, as part of our work in trying to open people's minds using food, I never want to pigeonhole ourselves in a way that doesn't provide the opportunity or reach that hand out to somebody who mm. might not be inclined to try Indian food who might walk in otherwise. Ah, I see what you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I love that thought process. Like, it's, it's don't think of it as just Indian. It's, it's us as a brand that's going to probably change your mind and how you view something. And you're right, the logo is totally inviting. Like, the colors, the design, the font, it's very nice, and it's, it's set up very well. Like, Thank you, man. Appreciate I can it. see it, dude. Like, I, I love when I see great branding like that that's like we i literally ate there that one time because i was like this brand just looks good i was like <laughs> I, I, was, I was like i was like that word just looks great in those hey, colors I, good like, design's important dude it's so important <laughs> it makes you happy right it like, does and, the yeah. indian grill under it would have like been, yeah let's maybe go to that place next door you know yeah but well, and we wanted to feel like um like while we're a fast casual we really we have what a lot of people call an elevated design for a fast casual. And that was a very intentional decision. So like when you go to a Chipotle, they have these like wood or steel seats with no padding on them. It's very cold and industrial. Yeah. They kind of go for that vibe. Yeah. And, um, and that's actually pretty intentional. And the reason is because they want to turn seats. So Mm. they don't actually want you to stay for more than 20 to 30 minutes. They want you to eat and get the fuck out so that someone else can eat and, and, then keep continuing that pattern, right? Ah, and so true. for us, like while of course we're in the same business and we absolutely like want tables to turn and all of those things, we like also a big part of Indian culture is is this hospitality and this like welcome to my home. You know, like mm. we're so excited for you to be here and to experience this in however you want to experience it, but we're gonna show you love when you're here. And that's why we, you know, we very intentionally put padding on our seats, we designed up, we serve wine, we serve beer, we serve cocktails, because we want you to feel comfortable and enjoying your experience at the restaurant. Dude, yes. <laughs> and we, we should totally unpack it now. How did like the journey to Rasa start? From what I know, you guys did what I think 70% of the nine to fivers dream about every day in the city. And that's quit your day job and start something you actually care about. Yep. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I know, I guess just unpack it for me, man. Like, where did it, where did it start? Yeah. So, um, so it, it started kind of at a young age. I, I never thought that I was going to work in a cubicle mm-hmm. and growing up, one of my biggest fears was actually working a nine to five job as odd as that sounds. And, and now having some space from it and looking backwards, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, my dad was obviously the person I was looking up to a big role model and, he owned his own business and that I guess subconsciously somewhere it's like, Oh, I want to be like my dad. Yeah. You're you know, surrounded like by essentially entrepreneurs at that point. Yeah. And all of my, all of my dad's friends who, I mean, we, we kind of were raised in, in more of a village mm-hmm. than anything. Like all of, uh, all of our parents' friends happened to move from India to this area. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah. So we grew up with like, not just my mom and my dad, but we had so many parents and so many friends and it was kind of like this, communal way of growing up, which was really, really special. And, um, yeah, so I had always been tinkering with like 
random, dumb entrepreneurial ideas. But like, I always knew that that was something I was attracted to and drawn towards. And, um, as I progressed through college, this dream I had when I was 17 of opening an Indian fast casual restaurant that stayed with me. So I really had no interest in supply chain or operations, which were the two things I majored in in college. Um, (laughs) I, I liked business and I was much more interested in marketing, international business, et cetera. But I was like, oh, if I'm going to start a restaurant, I can figure marketing out. That stuff feels easy. But like the ops and supply chain seems so important. So, so you, did you go into college knowing that you wanted to build something afterwards or did you go into college being like, ah, fuck the food? Like what was the thought process there? Uh, you know, so growing up, everyone always asked me if I was going to take over the family business. Yeah. Like, you know, all the uncles be like, Hey, you're going to take over. Yeah. I'm like, I'm 15. I don't know. (laughs) I just want to play call of duty all day. I don't know, dude. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I, I knew I wanted to start something one day, but mm. as a freshman in college, it was just like so far away. I was like, mm. yeah, I don't know. Like, it wasn't really a plan, but I knew I wanted to work towards that one day, I suppose. Um, and really what I did have in mind was I, I loved this idea of this idea I had when I was younger of taking this food and making it more accessible. Mm. And so it's actually been an idea. It's been like baking for, for 10 years. Wow. <laughs> and so... As I, I went through college, I studied supply chain and ops because I thought those were important. And I structured a lot of my experiences around restaurants. So my freshman year summer, I worked at Uncle Julio's. Oh, classic Uncle Julio's. Right. And uh, I could have worked at the family restaurant, but I actually wanted to work at a brand that had 20 or 25 restaurants and learn because, yeah. you know, we had two or three restaurants at the time. And it's like they were doing well and they were small businesses. So they were chaotic and just a lot of stuff that needed to be figured out and whatnot. So it's like, let me figure out how you scale one of these. So I went, I was just a waiter there, but I was, it's like constantly trying to learn and understand. You, you do get a lot of insight if you're looking for it in something like that. Absolutely. So uh, I did that. And then uh, actually the summer before my senior year of college, I had um, th- that the semester before I had been studying abroad in the South of Spain in Jesus. Sevilla, which is like, if anyone is thinking about it, like you will absolutely love it. It's Where were you? In Sevilla. Sevilla? Oh yeah, in, in America, we call it Seville. Oh, um, wow. it's, uh, it's fucking incredible, man. Like one of the prettiest cities in the world and the nicest people, the Damn. best food. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really a magical place. So I, I basically, yeah, I went abroad with four of my best friends from college Classes were pass-fail. Passing was 50%, and we had <laughs> classes two days a week. Jesus. So, uh, so, I mean, it was a very academically challenging semester. I could tell, man. <laughs> what a stressful time, dude. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, was, it was brutal. I mean, we, we traveled to, I don't know, nine or ten countries that semester. And, and so I just fell in love with travel. And um, it. I, I felt I was learning so much about myself, about the world. It was the first time I felt like I'd been lit, like I'd, I'd been lit on fire. And I was like, this is what I'm meant to do was to travel. And, and I also had this passion for restaurants as well. So mm. I wasn't ready to come home that summer. And I ended up finding an internship with Outback Steakhouse in Southeast Asia of all places. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, it was kind of a wild story. I like thought I was, they had the, it's this company that is the, the franchise, they hold the franchise rights for Outback in five countries in Southeast Asia and they've got their headquarters in Singapore. So I thought I was going to be just working in Singapore 
all summer. I packed my one suit and all of my ties and, you know, I like head out that way. And, uh, I get there after a 18 hour journey or something like this. And, Jesus. um, I meet my, my boss who I've never met before. And he goes, Sahil, it's, it's very nice to meet you. I hope you're ready to go. Just like, mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what else are you I say? like literally just got to this country and I'm by, it's my first time traveling by myself. I'm like, where am I going? And, uh, this guy was the man. He, he, Planned the most incredible summer for me. He sent me to the Philippines for a couple of weeks, then to, uh, where was it? To Malaysia and then to Indonesia. Wait, you're telling me there's Outback in all these countries? Oh, yeah. Guess how many, <laughs> guess how many Outback steakhouses there are in South Korea? I don't, I probably don't want to know. Just guess. I, I don't know. I'm going to shoot for stars like 300. 105. That's still a it's crack an, ton. Yeah. And like people fucking love it. Like one of my, uh, one of my friends, uh, Katie, she taught abroad in, in South Korea and a lot of her students would be like, for Christmas, we want Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> we want a like, blooming onion. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the place I work, they called it the Typhoon Bloom. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. I did not know that was such a crazy big conglomerate corporation. Yeah. And so, so, so kind of tying back to the yeah, story, yeah. I was, uh, it was amazing to see how a restaurant brand was able to... Well, I guess I've actually never been to an Outback in America. I need to, it's still on my bucket list is to, Don't do to it. go to one of those. It's going to break your heart. It sounds like you, you're like living in that fairy tale. Do not go to the American yeah, Outback. I've got, I've got very fond associations with, with Outback because I've only been to Indonesia. But um, yes, so I learned so much there. And then that, that start of my senior year, I'm like, all right, I'm going to start this restaurant. I'm really excited. So you knew after all those travels, you were like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I was just like, this sounds cool. I think this is what I'm going to do. I like the idea. And um, I'll never forget, it's like October or something like that. And my dad gives me a call. And he doesn't, he, he didn't like call me that often in college. I was like, oh, God, here we go. So I answer the phone and he's like, Sahil, how's the job hunt going? And I'm like, oh, you know, it's going. He's like, all my friends' kids have uh, started to get jobs. Ooh. So I just wanted to understand where are you in this process? And I haven't applied to a single job. And it's like oh. near the end of like the recruiting season, if you will. Oh. And I was like, well, you know, like remember we talked about that restaurant idea? I figured I'd yeah, just do that. It's like, uh, where are you going to get the money for that? And all of a sudden the light bulb went off and I was like, oh shit, I need to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh shit, you're right. Yeah, it's like, I don't even know the first step. I was, you know, it's like I went to, I studied business in college. I thought I was going to start a restaurant, but I never actually had gone through that process of like, what is it actually going to take? Yeah. And so, um, it was that night actually happened to be the last night to apply for a job at Deloitte Consulting. And so, um, I threw my name in the hat and, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't necessarily stoked about the job and went out drinking before the interview and whatnot. And, <laughs> and, uh, whether because of that or in spite of it, I ended up being one of the few kids that got that offer and everyone, uh, yeah, everyone around me was super excited. There was like three or 400 kids that applied for it and only, I don't know, seven or eight of us got the, uh, got the offer. But like, I mean, one, I was just like, why the fuck did they pick me? Right. And then, <laughs> and two, I was like, uh. I guess I'll do this because that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, I can see at that point, like everyone's like, oh my God, he's got like the dream job after college. You got selected. Like from your dad's point of view, he's like, my son's working at Deloitte, you know, like, like right. that feels real good. Yeah. There's, right there. there is like a lot of familial pride and, and like things on, like on that. On surface, and, that seems ideal. Yeah. 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 And so, um, 
I started working at Deloitte and immediately that fear I had when I was a little kid of like, I don't want to work in a cubicle. I don't want to do a nine to five. All of those things just started coming up so intensely. Ooh. And I, I think I would have been a much better manager than analyst there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just really, I've never been good at following instructions or taking direction from other people, particularly if I'm not necessarily like bought into what we're doing or just, you know, like I, I'm fortunate to have been empowered at a young age to feel that my opinion matters. Mm. Right. And like not everyone feels that way. And so just, uh, being told what to do was really challenging for me at that, at that point in time. And, um, so, so when I look back on my time at Deloitte, I'm incredibly grateful. I learned so much of like, though you're starting, like though we've started our own business, I'm a small business owner and an entrepreneur, I still have to interact with a lot of big companies. I now have a lot of those skills. So it was, I mean, though it was a really challenging and difficult time, it, it was really, it was really beneficial in hindsight. Um, How long were you at Deloitte for? So only a year and a half, actually. It was actually oh. kind of a, a year and a half or two years. It was a pretty short period of time. And it was interesting because right as I had started was right as a lot of my travels had ended. So like it was a consulting job. So I was traveling a lot domestically, but I had in the year or two prior to that, I think traveled to 17 or 18 countries and my whole worldview had been warped. You know, like I was like, wow, there's, I'm obsessed with traveling. I'm learning so much. I love meeting new people, exploring new cultures, all of of this. And, and so while I was at Deloitte, one of the things that kept coming up for me was, how I wanted to travel and how, like how I had a lot of friends who also felt that way. Mm. And and I noticed this huge, um, this huge moment that was happening where you had teachers, like students that graduated from college and would teach abroad, but then they would come home and would have a really hard time finding a job because their experience wasn't valued. And then you had a lot of people who went to, to the university, like the friends that went to Maryland or, or other like reasonably good schools that, uh, you know, maybe they didn't study business or they studied art history or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And they just weren't able to find jobs. So those people were back working at the Uncle Julio's where I was a couple years ago, you know. And, um, and at the same time, I was thinking all I did was travel. Why did I, why is it that someone who taught abroad was unable to get a job, but I traveled as well and I was able to get a job. And what I realized was just this, this shift in narrative of viewing travel as a tool that allows you to grow and be better in an environment versus something that holds you back. What dude, something should be said for what travel, like the impact of traveling on your brain. Hmm. Like I have very narrowly traveled. And when I came back from a 10 day trip to France and Spain, it completely shifted my mind. Like I was a different person. Like I was like, the world's a bigger place. I should aim higher. Like it's, I don't live in like as small of a place as I live. Like I feel like I could do anything. Right. And you learn about different ways of living and like, we've we've been so steeped in this idea of American exceptionalism. Like Mm, even though I'm half true, half,
Okay, there's some, in, in a funny way, it makes you appreciate more a lot of the things that we do have here. And it also makes you realize there's other ways of doing things and maybe there's things we can learn from from other people. Mm-hmm. Like we don't necessarily always have to have all the answers. Like if you're not listening, you're not growing. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. It it. it it does shift your worldview like that. The whole American exceptionalism, I've never thought about it like that. But yeah, we, we really do think that everywhere else is like a fucking third world country or something. But but then you go to France, you go to Spain, you're like, oh no, they're, they're just like me and you. Like, they're not that much different. Maybe America just has more guns or we don't know what it is. You know, whatever right. whatever that gives us that mentality. But then you see it's it's pretty equal and it's pretty flat as far as like, Flat's probably a bad word, or not not a good way to explain it. But it's it's on the same plane of of what's possible, I guess. Yeah, I mean the way the way I like to think about it is it just provides you new experiences and new frameworks for thinking about the world. So mm. I, I, yeah, I mean you go to certain parts of the world and you absolutely learn. Okay, it's great that I have all these things in America. That's this is better in many ways. And then you also are able to see, huh? These people live really differently. Like, yeah. And different doesn't have to be scary, you know, and like different maybe, isn't bad. Yeah. Either. And maybe sometimes different is good of like, OK, we prioritize work, 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 work. These people, maybe they have their economy isn't as strong, but they're happier. So it's like it makes I mean, to me and I think every person has different reactions to those experiences and different experiences wherever they go. But it's this question of just understanding and asking yourself okay, clearly there's one way of living that I've been steeped in my whole life, mm. but there's billions of people on the planet who live in a very different way than I do. So what is the way that I want to live? That Yeah, maybe that's it right there. It's like, what is the way, what is my way? Yeah, just just for me. I'm not imposing that no, on No, 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 but else. I'm saying, yeah. but that's the effect of travel. Right. You know, so, so, so you're, you're at Deloitte for a year and a half, then what? Yeah, so this uh, this idea I was telling you about of it was kind of the uh, the collision of a few factors. So did you finally save up that money that your dad was like, "Yo, you ain't got no money, dog." Like, that, <laughs> anyways, keep going. Keep yeah, going. yeah. So, so I'll absolutely get there, and I'll, I'll kind of yeah, yeah. kind of move this along. So no, no, no. Take your time. Oh friend. yeah. Take your time. No, no, no. It's just cool. So um, basically, while I was at Deloitte, I came up with this idea to solve this travel conundrum I was seeing. The uh, the idea was called Globe Year, like a year around the globe. And the the problem I was solving was this problem where recent graduates from college wanted to travel. Corporations were, at this time, it was 2012, the economy was starting to pick back up, and corporations were actually looking to hire, but they couldn't find qualified students, students that had tangible skills that they felt were what they were looking for. And then you also had this massive problem of underemployment where smart people were ending up working at Starbucks. And there's, so that is by no means saying working at Starbucks is a bad job. But if you're spending $100,000 to go to a university, you shouldn't end up in a job where you didn't have to go to university for at all. Yeah, it's like what's well, not what they deserve or not what they're, they're not utilizing their capabilities or their potential. Right. I mean, it's like, why did you go to college? If yeah. You know, like it's an investment what's your return on that? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and not only are people underemployed, then you also, the kind of the fourth, uh, the fourth leg of that stool is you had people like me who were gainfully employed and theoretical good jobs, but who were just really unhappy and also unsure of what 
direction life was going to like wh- what direction I wanted to take life in mm-hmm. um, because I had a very narrow view of what the world was, which would have been presented to me. So the idea was to take these recent college graduates, send them on a year long trip around the world while traveling, have them work on experiential based projects, which were with, uh, with impact oriented organizations and through this process, help them figure out not only what it is that they want to do, but also develop tangible skills so that when they come home now, you've had the experience of being able to travel, learn more about yourself, what you want, and you have tangible skills that can help you get career opportunities in the fields that you're interested Dude, in. Dude, that is epic. Thank you. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? And I, I can tell you've said that a lot. But, like, like who, who wouldn't want to do Like, that sounds amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, so the idea actually, it was just something I wanted to do for myself when I was working at Deloitte of, like, I this is what I was dreaming of. Like I wanted to create my own MBA basically. Ah. Um, and so I, I kind of became consumed by this idea while I was working at Deloitte and, and really became the definition of a disengaged employee. Mm. And, um, and as I was going down this path, I started trying to figure out how I was going to make this be something that was sustainable because I didn't want it to be uh, like the idea of travel to me was very inclusive. And I, I loved this notion that anyone can do it. And there were people that were willing to pay $50,000 for the experience, but that just wasn't the point, right? It, it was meant to be something for everyone. And so I was really struggling with, and at the same time, I also didn't want to be broke my whole life, you know, of just like facts and trying broke their whole life. Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to figure out how can I pay rent while I'm trying to do this thing. And so I ended up uh, parting like Deloitte and I parted ways. It was a mutual breakup and I think it was best for both sides. I, I really view relationships with companies the way I view relationships with people. They nice. can be healthy. They can be emotionally abusive. They can be all, all sorts of things. But like they could sense you were disengaged and you yeah, knew yeah, it. No, so it was I, like a sort I, of Absolutely. I, uh, I was the definition of a disengaged employee. <laughs> I was actively finding ways to not work. Okay. And um, so we both kind of realized this wasn't the right fit. And, and um, at the time it was very difficult to process yeah. of like, I've been working towards leaving, but I was afraid to leave. And they actually kind of gave me a push out the door. And uh, I told myself I was going to quit in September, that was when I moved to New York City. I, I moved to New York without telling the company because my best friend lived there and I thought it'd be fun. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, then I said, okay, I'm going to do it in December. And I didn't, I didn't do it both those times. And then come January, it was, it was kind of like a, a breakup that had been a long time coming and I didn't wow. have the balls to jump, actually. And so they pushed you out. They pushed me out. And, um, and in a funny way at the time, it was like incredibly difficult to talk about. And it was the oddest thing because it, when I'd talk to friends, I would talk about how much I, I was unhappy and how I wanted to leave. But it's so interesting how fear can hold you back. The unknown, not knowing what's going to happen once you take that leap. Right. Of, and, and also, it was a pretty good paying job. Recent college grad, you're making a lot of money. And you sort of, it, it, there's this like interesting trap you can get into where you start living a certain lifestyle that... You need to like that requires a lot of financial resources to support. And in that comfort, you create the situation or or I created the situation where it was more difficult to leave it. Yeah, because you start buying nice things, you start getting 
I don't know, a mortgage, a car payment, whatever it is, and you become a, like a slave to it. Like all of a sudden, oh, I have to stay here for another year or two. Right, and you forget that you can be fine without those things. Oh. And and the more you you surround yourself with other people who that's their worldview too. Uh, and, and I learned a lot about uh, just asking for advice during that process in that when you ask for advice from someone, you need to be really mindful about where they're coming from. Because That's so true. People give you advice from their perspective, right? Careful who you take so advice from. It's like if you're talking to a partner at Deloitte about should I quit my job to do this really risky, unstable thing, that guy has made all of the choices in his life to follow that straight line to get him to the top of this one path that his parents probably set out for him, right? Thanks. And if you talk to an entrepreneur, there, so people just kind of reinforce their worldview, whatever that might be. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, mm -hmm. but it's just being able to have that awareness as you go into those kinds of conversations. That's true. That's a good perspective to look at that. Like, who are you taking advice from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and just knowing where where they're coming from and how you value this. So those were you, so you, you quit Deloitte, you moved to New York. Were you pursuing that whole uh, idea that you had right at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I left Deloitte. I, uh, I spent a few months kind of full-time working on Globier and a couple things happened. I, this is like, I was 23, 23 year old me. It's funny looking back now, but I broke up with a girl that I'd been dating for the year and, uh, it was like my first breakup and it was sort Ooh. of this like broke two hearts at once kind of thing, went into a downward spiral and it was just impossible to focus. I've never really had anything quite happen like that, but it's sort of just like you know, just staring at the ceiling, that the whole nine yards kind of situation. Wow. And um, I spent probably like four to six months just like building myself back up and really like recreating myself to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, which sounds it sounds odd to say. And it's funny looking backwards. But uh, that was though it was sort of a dark and difficult place. It was the the most important period, I'd say, of my life really? in that. um yeah, through that experience, uh, are you familiar with an organization called Starting Block? No, I never heard of it. Um, so actually, Matt and I—that's how we met. Mm -hmm. um, so they—they they are this incredible Starting Block. This incredible community of like two to three thousand ambitious young people around the around the world who are a combination of creators, entrepreneurs, activists, and people that are just looking to make a positive impact on their small part of the world or, or, or much broader. And, um, so a number of friends in New York and kept telling me about this people I really looked up to and respected. So I went to that and it just really like was the, the doorway to a new world in that I'd always felt another way was possible, but the only options that I had, uh, seen presented. Oh, was that your phone? Me, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Sorry, you nah, it's all good, man. <laughs> No, it's okay. It's, it's cool. Deal, but starting block sounds hella cool, man. Yeah. So sorry about that. No, no <laughs> worry. I'm not worried about it, dude. So, um, so yeah, yeah it, uh, it was really like this doorway to this new world. So I had always thought another way was possible and felt like I never fit into the conventional mold. So they put you in touch with these people? Like what was it? It was like a community or an online yeah, so, community? So the way, the way that it works is they have, um, different institutes and at your institute there's 70 to 100 people or so from around the world i went to the one in la i think they've got three or four that happen across the globe yeah and um 
I just met all of these really interesting, creative, entrepreneurial, open-hearted people that were all on their respective paths and wanted to create their own future. And then once you go through your, and it's a pretty intense experience, once you go through your five-day institute, you're now a part of this broader community where wherever you go, that community exists. And um, so, I mean, that was back in 2014 or so. And and that really just served as kind of the first lily pad, if you will, of Mm -hmm. opening my mind to a lot of new possibilities. And so um, while I was on that path and just like getting more in touch with myself and more aligned, um, but still like pseudo working on this this education idea, I found a company in Chicago called Experience Institute. They were doing really similar work. It looked like they'd figured out the business model and... I, um, I contacted the founder and said, Hey, we're doing some more stuff. I would love to, to find a way to create a role so that I could come and, and learn and see what y'all are up to. And so, uh, we talked for a couple months and decided, all right, let's do this thing. Dude, that, that's a big thing right there though. Like that takes a lot of humility too, to do that. Cause like you want to do your own thing, but you found someone further along and you're like, yo, let me come work for you. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a really interesting process and, uh, I'm really grateful I did it because I, I wanted to understand how is someone else doing it because I was having a hard time finding those answers myself. And the funniest thing happened was, I think this was May 2014, I signed on with Experience Institute and right before I left, um, so right before I left, I I met uh, a new girl who's the one that was just calling me. Mm. And, um, And it just so happened that my business partner, Rahul, who's been my best friend since I was born, uh, he and Ode, my girlfriend, lived a block and a half away from each other in New York City in the Lower East Side. Whoa. And I was at Ode's place all the time. And so one night, Rahul and I, we grabbed drinks at a speakeasy. And um, actually, our dads, we'd had this restaurant in Deke Heights where we had worked for a really long time. And the landlord, our lease was ending, the landlord wanted to turn it into a doctor's office. We're like, all right. Okay. Uh, so we, we decided to get drinks, just like catch up. We were talking about that. And this was that moment where we had started seeing this, this change happening in society where people were becoming more open-minded and more adventurous eaters and fast casual was really hitting its stride. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the idea we had had back in high school, that moment was really happening Whoa. and we could feel it. And we grabbed drinks. And we said, you know what? Like, would it, would it be too crazy to like do this? And, uh, and Rahul had been working in investment banking for the last few years at at that time. And I knew he was, wasn't loving what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And this idea had started like sparking back in my mind. I was like, I mean, would you be open to this? And, um, and so we, we started talking about it. I ended up moving out to Chicago to work with experience and super that whole summer, like every weekend we'd spend a few hours like researching the market, trying to figure out how the fuck you start a restaurant and all this stuff. And, um, in this like very full circle way, um, it was July that year. I flew in from Chicago. Rahul came down from New York because it was the last dinner we were having in Indy kites before we closed the restaurant. And that, uh, that day we had decided we were going to tell our parents we were going to do it. And so at the last meal we were having at Indy Kites, we told our parents we wanted to leave our jobs, move back home and open Rasa. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot, dude. Holy shit. Like, yeah. It's crazy how fast your mind switched from like 
working at that company that was according to your old business plan. Yeah. And then meeting Rahul and, and wow. Yeah. And you know, uh, I, I, still have so much love for Globier and the education space and experiential learning and mm-hmm. travel. And I, I hope to one day in my life, get back to that space. And it just felt like the timing wasn't right for it. Yeah. For whatever reason, the universe wasn't guiding me to, to pursue that. And this new door had opened. And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. <sighs> and, um, I really just had to walk through it. Yeah. And that was like your childhood dream with your best friend and everything. And it seems so possible now. It's like, yeah, at that point, it seems like you know, we could actually do this. Like, yeah. Like we have enough <laughs> experience, a little bit of money or whatever. You could get some investors, Rahul, whatever, you know? And it's like, it's, that's, it, it's also cool to see you pivot like that too. You know, like you weren't scared to kind of throw away that thing so fast and be like, okay, no, this is actually what I wanted to do. Like, it's always cool to see how you got to that point, you know? Yeah. And you know, it was quite an emotional decision to say like, I'm going to put this on the side for now. And that doesn't mean that I'll never be able to come back to this, but it was just like, this isn't right for this moment. Mm. And this is where I want to put my energy now. And so, um, I still had to get the travel bug out of me. So, uh, I, well, and I also knew I'd I'd worked in fine dining and worked in casual dining, but I never actually worked at a fast casual restaurant. I was oh. like, I should probably do that before I open this thing up. So um, I moved back to New York for a month after Chicago, worked at two fast casuals. I worked at Roti actually for a month. And uh, that same month I worked at, because uh, I wanted to see how like a well-oiled machine, you know, they got yeah. they had 25 or so restaurants at the time. And, and I also wanted to work at a startup to figure out what the hell it's like to actually be in the trenches starting something up. So I... Um, I worked at Roti and then, uh, this other great brand in New York called Fields Good Chicken. And, uh, yeah, it's this this great guy named Field Failing. And he, um, he has this like neat story of he's like a professional biker and he wanted healthy food and he started cooking these amazing meals. And so he opened up his first restaurant in Fidei in New York city. And, uh, they've got, I think four or five restaurants now they're opening a few more doing really, really well. I'm a little confused how he wants healthy, good food. That's fried chicken, but okay. Oh no, it's not fried. Oh, okay. okay. It's, uh, it's no fried chicken. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Talk about some experience though. Holy yeah, shit. And so, those uh, two. so I started, uh, working at those two places and then, um, and after about a month of that, I knew I still had to get this travel bug out of me. So, um, I met up with one of my best friends in, uh, in Thailand. We traveled for about a month together. And then, uh, my girlfriend, Ode was going to India. So I met up with her and we traveled through India for a month together. And then, um, after that, I moved back to, I came back to New York. Rahul and I rented a U-Haul because I mean, we both grew up 10 minutes from each other, packed our shit and, uh, and drove down to DC. Dang, the move back home. Yeah, man. (laughs) God, it's, it's, it's. I know exactly what that feels like, man. I've, yeah. I've been there, dude. Where are you from? Dude, I'm, so I'm from Virginia. Yeah, man, born and raised, grew up in Virginia. Uh, went to school ODU, um, studied audio engineering. So you okay. can imagine what it's like getting a job in that after school. Yeah. But, <laughs> it um, seems like you're putting it to good use. Yeah, actually, it's pretty ironic. Like That's, that's why this podcast sounds so goddamn good. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, I'm not lying. But... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's like I had that same moment where you're just doing something and you end up moving back home to reset, hmm. you know? And I think it's an important part, you know, it's it's beautiful that you could have that support system. Yeah, I'm so lucky to have uh, supportive parents that were more than excited to have me back home. And I'm not going to lie, that was like, it was brutal. I mean, I went from being like 
23, living the good life, making a lot of money, cool apartment in Brooklyn, girlfriends there, you know, like living the yeah. life to, uh, yeah, to moving back to Gaithersburg, Maryland, back in the suburbs, <laughs> uh, living like we literally built a parent, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, we built, um, an office in my parents' basement. We got a pool table, you know, like we never ended up using it, but we, we spent time building it <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, it was it was incredibly difficult, man. I mean, I can imagine like mentally, socially, peer pressure wise, like yeah, depending on how you go you're from you that. go from making money to not making money. I actually started driving Lyft to help support myself, and um, yeah, you go from status to broke and <laughs> living back with your parents. You go from being surrounded by friends to not really, you know, like there's not really anyone you know back home. A little isolated from anything. Yeah, and. Uh, and um, it was, and then you go from freedom to last time I lived with my parents was in high school. Yeah, and you know, there's this whole navigating this this new dynamic. And um, while that was an incredible, we were back home for almost two years actually. And uh, while that was like a brutal period, at the same time I look back on it with fondness. And uh, the reason I do is. I realized that if I hadn't moved back home, I would have never seen my parents as adults and as people. They mm. always had just been my parents. And I had never taken the time to understand, okay, they're their own people with their own strengths and weaknesses and fears and insecurities and joy. More humanizing it is. Yeah. And we had never met as individuals. There was always this parent-child power dynamic, right? So Versus true meeting as two humans that want to connect and understand one another. And so I, I have, I'm, I'm really grateful to say that I, I feel I've got a really strong relationship with my parents today, which I thought I did before, but I realized I just didn't know them. And yeah. we now know each other on a much deeper level. And, um, and a lot of people don't get that opportunity or don't invest in those relationships. And, um, do you read wait, but why? No. Uh, it's just like great Silicon Valley blog. It's this guy, uh, Tim something. He's Tim Ferriss. No, no, no. It's not Tim Ferriss. Uh, Tim urban. Okay. And, uh, wait, but why? Yeah. It's okay. like wait, but why.org. Right, whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah, you should check it out. And he does this like great, uh, he does like a lot of graphics and he's, he's got this incredible ability to take super complex topics and break them down into really easily understandable ideas. So, uh, for, for context, Elon Musk reached out to this random blogger for wait, but why Tim Urban and asked him to explain how his business has worked uh, oh. because he's, he's really talented at that. And so he has this uh, amazing post about time spent with family and time spent particularly with your parents. And I am going to butcher the percentages, yeah. but it was something like, after you leave for college, you've already spent over 80% of the time you'll ever spend with your parents. And people don't think about it, but it's like, okay, maybe you see them for a birthday dinner and you see them for Christmas seven days and it's like, or five days or whatever. So if it's seven days a year and you multiply that out, that's really like a very limited amount of time in your life. Yeah. And, um, and so reading that was really influential and it's made me, uh, that and a, a number of other moments have made me really grateful for, the opportunity to not just learn about them, but also um, I've been thinking a lot about the impact different generations have on us, not just the parents, which is such a direct impact, but also, uh, you know, my parents being immigrants to this country, 
the things that their parents went through and, and beyond up that, up that familial tree. And I've just learned so much of late that I probably never would have had I stayed in oh, New York or had I not. That's so crazy when you wouldn't really break it down how much time you actually spent with your parents like that. Jeez, it makes me want to go visit my mom like tomorrow. Dude, you should read It's It's really a mind blowing post. It's like, yeah. it's, it's kind of like a slap in the face, sort of this like, Oh shit moment. Yeah. Of I'm definitely checking this out. Holy shit. Yeah, it's it's it is super it's super illuminating. Wait, like so what was the impact bit. of that on this journey? Was it just is something you're Oh, uh, well know? so so I mean so yeah, so that that impact on this journey was just like though that period was really difficult. So we were fundraising. So mm. we, you know, the first question was how do you start a restaurant? Okay, well you need money. How much money do you need? All right, we need like a million dollars. How do you raise a million dollars? I got no fucking clue. And so, um, is that actually, is that what you were yeah, looking at? It's so expensive to open a restaurant. People don't realize like, um, I mean, if you want to have a, a brand that people feel is like not a hole in the wall or whatever, especially when you be. started out. Yeah. Like it, and, and fast casual, I mean, at the, at the, particularly at the time we were opening, even today, the market was going through a massive fast casual boom. And so everyone is competing for these same 2000 square foot boxes. So it's, it's really hard to find a second generation restaurant that you can just flip really quickly. And so, because you're competing with Chipotle, you're competing with Starbucks, Sweetgreen, Cava, all these other brands that were either national chains expanding or local ones that were in the midst of their boom. And so, uh, I mean, the, the, for context, the average Chipotle, they spend about $800,000 to open. Uh, I mean, the average Starbucks wow. is like, I think around 500,000 or something of that nature. But I mean, yeah, they're publicly traded companies. So you're actually able to access this information and people don't realize how much money it costs to actually build a brick and mortar retail store. I would never store. guess it was that much. I'd been like 50,000. <laughs> you laugh at that, but yeah, it's how, it's how, it's how, oh, wow, man, I can't I, believe it was like a million, like holy shit. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish it was 50,000. Yeah, right. Maybe we'd have a lot more Rosses at this point. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, so there's this, this grand question of like, all right, I'm 24 years old. How am I going to convince all these rich people to, well, I don't even know any rich people. How do I convince people to, Give me that money. Yeah. And so um, it was a grueling but uh, immensely important year of un- like of learning and just understanding not only these different structures for fundraising, but also how to how to pitch a vision when all you have is a pitch deck. Yeah. So what was that like? So you were just legit pitching for a whole year? Just, just- oh yeah, it was. I mean, it was brutal. You know, like you're living at home. You can't, you're not building the restaurant, right? Like you're just sitting there, like sending out emails, calling people, getting coffees, talking to people on the street. Like, Hey, you got a rich uncle, you know, like just trying to meet anyone you can that can support you in this way. Do you remember your first investor? Yeah, actually. Um, so we we're, we're really blessed and, um, our dads are actually our first investors. So, and, and that was hugely important and it wasn't a massive amount, but um, and like, while we aren't massively financially privileged, we have a great deal of social capital mm-hmm. and that has been enormously helpful. So ah, our fathers it. have owned and they, they have owned and operated and are currently operating, uh, restaurants and they've done that for the last 27 years and they're just the nicest guys in the world and, and everyone that meets them, I mean, they, they feel similarly. So they have all of these people that are really excited to help support them or their families. And I mean, this was so difficult and that was despite 
having dads that are in the industry and having, um, having, but they had like that, a network they built because they yeah. knew a lot of people by feeding them and they liked the food. So, I mean, I guess on yeah, that end, absolutely. it's like, Hey, you know, any investors, but I mean, you but have, they never, so I mean, our dads, like they did it the hard way, right? Like they, yeah. I mean, we have investors, our dads, you know, they put their, their lives on the line and went to a bank and said, you own me now. Can I have the money to open a restaurant? And, um, so, so while they had a lot of operations experience, they had never taken capital themselves. They didn't, they didn't want to be beholden to anyone. So they, they wanted to, to be their own bosses. Yeah. And, um, I, I now just have such immense respect for every small business owner, even for our, I mean, like we've always respected our dads, but the, the level of that, that depth of that appreciation has just increased exponentially because you understand how fucking difficult this yeah, is. Yeah. They had no investors, no yeah, fundraising. It was just debt to the bank. Imagine like, 27 years ago before the internet, right? Like imagine being two men of color just moved to this country trying to start a business where they're just learning how things work. Um, that and, is insane. And dude. those are the stories of so many of the immigrant owned small businesses in America. And I just, I mean, whether I like the person personally or not, like I just, anyone that is putting the work in and, and creating something, I, I now have such a deep respect. That's a mm. profound respect for that. Yeah, as, as you say, it's so easy to look at a hole in wall and shit on it. But now that you understand it, you're like, no, this is just what they have to do. Yeah, this shit is hard. Like they can't this afford the nice decoration and the <laughs> yeah enormous it, wood not doors everyone, and the like, swings on the patio. Like they have to literally just have some bare yeah, bones I mean, chairs, a menu, and like a kitchen. Like we come from like we our fathers have operational experience. They have a great name, so we've got that social capital to build on. Rahul worked in investment banking. I worked in strategy consulting with two brand name firms. Mm-hmm. We both have a college education from a good university. Shit, and I can a imagine you writing up all those people like, hey, so. Uh. Yeah. And, and now, I mean, and I think of all of those things we have in our favor and it was still so difficult. Really? Immensely challenging. And, and I understand now why so many restaurants fail, why so many small businesses don't last. And yeah, so when I see people putting in the work, it's just like, fuck yeah, like I see you. I know, I like now know what this process is like. Damn. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's hard to, like it's really hard to convince people to buy into your vision and particularly in, it, it's, uh, you know, we met so many people that were tech investors who were like, oh yeah, I want to invest in the next Facebook like, yeah, I'm not selling that. I'm selling a restaurant. Especially right? at that time. Like I, fundraising was a big thing. I know this, like fundraising was like the thing to do is build something off of an idea that has nothing to show for it, but it was kind of the hot thing to do and you were doing it, but with food, not a giant tech scalable company, but with yeah. food. Like, yeah. And trying to convince people, you know, food can be scalable. Food can have really great returns and it can make a really huge impact on the communities and the the areas that we're living in. And we, though it took a year and it was, it was an incredibly like painful and challenging process. We're so fortunate to have uh, a number of incredible investors who believed in us, believed in the vision. I mean, they, they gave a million dollars to two 24 year olds, right? Like we yeah, had, what the hell, man? Yeah. And, and that's, off. that's like their hard earned money and their, yeah, their, uh, their life savings that they're putting into us. And so, uh, <sighs> 
Yeah, it's uh, so so. I mean, to kind of continue. Yeah, on, yeah. So on like, what, so what was it like? I guess I guess eventually you got the capital. Like, right. What was so it we, like then. So so it was just like one step after another. So it was like, all right, we got the money, and then it's like, all right, now what? Okay, now we need to find a restaurant because you can't sign a lease until you have money. So all right, now we've got the money. Where are we going to put this restaurant? So it's mm, a great question. Yeah, it's, even, was, it's a hard question right there too. Right, and uh, I mean, location's so important in this industry. So we spent. A lot of time looking around the city, there's a few neighborhoods we liked and, and we found this, um, this amazing opportunity in Navy Yard and we really loved Navy Yard because it is a neighborhood that is still emerging and we loved the idea Very of being so. able to be a, a part of the fabric of a neighborhood as it's growing to be that local spot in an area where at the time when we were coming in, there was a lot of chains where we you're like, all right, we're going to be that local spot. And it, it was cool because you had the baseball stadium. We said, you know what? If we can prove that we can get people to go to a baseball game to like Indian food, we can do this anywhere in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's so, actually trying to look at Yeah, like it's that. like you get American as apple pie. If I can get that guy to walk in and like Indian food, we're on to something, right? Yeah. And we also went on fast casual row. So we're next to Chipotle, Chopped, Roti. We were next to Taylor before they closed. And and we um, we said, like some people thought we were crazy. They're like, you're going to go against these big brand names. That's so risky. And, and our perspective was we got to find out if we're going to work one way or another, right? And so... Let's let's see what we're made of. Yeah. And so we we found this spot. It was kind of funny. I mean, as I was talking to you about, um, it was very hard to get a spot. It was it was a grueling process. It took us six months before we found this spot. And even when we found it, it was Chipotle, Chopped, Roti, all yeah, these big like the national brands. Next to it, like well, well. So from from a landlord perspective, uh, this landlord in this building oh. had uh, they hadn't worked with a startup before, and they wanted big national tenants that had huge. Uh, huge credit behind them. And, and so I actually wrote a letter to one of the heads of the company because I had heard they were on the fence about us. And I said, look, your building is boring. You have a bunch of suburban brands, but you want me. I am a 25 year old, theoretically high earning millennial. Who's the person you're trying to get to live in this building. Why would I live in this building when across the street, they've got, Sweet green. They've got cool retail. They've got interesting stuff. You've got Chipotle. It's not doing shit for me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was sort of like go for broke kind of mentality. Yeah. And fortunately, they they got the message. They understood, and they um, they took a chance on us. And what I'm uh, what I'm really excited about is there's uh, another DC brand that is a startup that they that is opening next door to us. And I think that we really paved the path for that to happen with the landlord because they've seen that. This is working really well. We've gotten a lot of good press and it's, it's been helpful for their building. Um, so, so we found a space and then at yeah, least negotiation nightmare. But that's crazy. You got it like that. That, that yeah. fucking letter, dude, is like, that's <laughs> what it was. It probably was that letter. I was like, look, like this is different. It's, it's a chance. It's, it's going to be cool. Like it's and now they're like, thank God. Cause now we look even better as a company for bringing these guys in. Like, right. Yeah. And I mean, even that, like they're, the, the reason that door was even open, why they were even on the fence is because that company owns other buildings around the city and they happen to be our landlord at Indique, which is my father's restaurant. Mm. And so, I mean, our dads have been good tenants with them for, uh, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um, and so because we had a relationship there, we were able to leverage that relationship. And um, yeah, I keep harboring on this, but I think it's just really important to call out the the relative privilege we've had to acknowledge how hard this is. 
and how and like why but, but those but those are just unique to you like those are like such unique things that are unique to you which made it possible oh yeah and like I mean, we every opportunistic too to yeah. be clear yeah and everyone but, has their own strategic advantages in whatever they do you totally. know but but from your side you had so much already going for you that was like right. do this like yeah, do yeah. this a hill like like it, it was it was it was in a way, like in this, I don't want to say in the stars, it sounds so fucking cliche, but no, like, I but, hear it, yeah. but yeah, you were rocking what you had, man. Like, oh whatever. yeah, no, and, and so we, I mean, we, we, like, look, we're not the sons of some tycoons that just yeah. had money we can throw at whatever problem. We've had to work our ass off. We spent years, those couple years, our dads had us scrubbing pots and pans, cutting 50 pound bags of onions, just like <laughs> sweating in the kitchen in the middle of the summer, you know, like really not sexy work. And so it's not to say that we haven't put in the work, but, um, one of the things I've learned is a lot of in the, the restaurant industry and in a number of other industries, there's a lot of these success stories people see and they're like, Oh man, how did they just do that? Or like, Oh, this mm -hmm. just happened. And one of the things that I've learned over the past few years is there's, there's a lot of hidden, hidden things that have helped push people forward. And so uh, I, I just like people to be aware of the very real challenges that are there. And so they're coming in with eyes wide open and ready to go into the fight. Do 100%. 100 percent, yeah. <laughs> man. Hidden things, aka like you know, like Chipotle, for example, his the Steve Ells' dad, he funded like the first few Chipotles. Oh, so right? he had a fat yeah, like from the, the beginning. The sweet green guys are absolutely brilliant and visionary. And their families are, they come from three entrepreneurial families to my understanding. So they had people. And one of the founders families was, they were one of the more connected and influential restaurant families in New York city. And so they had connections to the Danny Meyer and the, the, like the restaurant elite community, which of course uh, they still put in the work. They still built the yeah, brand. We're not taking anything away. We're yeah. not taking anything and away from them. There's, but. there's all of this social capital that's there or, or beyond, which, which serves as if you're playing Mario Kart, one of those accelerator pads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they had <laughs> they had the freaking mushrooms, bro. They had the three stack mushrooms, yeah. dude. Doof, doof, doof. Like they had like you guys just had like green shells, dude. Like, <laughs> like yeah, we, I mean we we had a few of the launch pads, but a lot of green shells as yeah, well. One or two red shells, yeah. but you know yeah. you, you got to get what you got. But that's interesting that you said that. I never knew that. I always thought that Sweet Green was just like two dudes from where's it Georgetown. Yeah. Which, which I already was like, all right, they got fucking money. They're going to Georgetown. But then, but I didn't know all that. Like, this, yeah. This and I mean, like th that. they, they went, I mean, as I understand the story, they absolutely had those moments where they were like, fuck, we might have to close this company of down course, and, of and they put in the work and there's, there's more to, to like all, a lot of these stories. And so I just, that's something I've learned in the past few years. And I think it's really important to, to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, like, so, so just kind of continuing yeah, that, yeah. that path, it was like, found the money, found the spot, took forever to sign a lease. Apparently lawyers are always on vacation in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And then, uh, once we signed the lease, you know, we, we hired an architecture firm, went through this really exciting design process of trying to figure out how we combine our two worlds. So thinking about how we bring in the energy and the color and the excitement and the chaos from Indian culture, but also knowing that we are American too and bringing that in also and, and being authentic to us. Cause that's just a word that means something different to every person. And, um, 
Yeah. So, so we design the space, then you go in for permits. Permits take forever. Uh, there's a lot of construction happening in DC. And so, um, you wait three or four months for your permits to come through. And then after all that, then you start building your restaurant and that also takes three or four months. So you do all of that. And then finally you get to hiring your staff training, doing your soft openings, and then finally really getting to, um, to opening day. It always feels like that seems like the most fun part though. Like not the whole waiting for permits or the location, but actually building a restaurant. Like that's when it's real, right? Like that's, oh, yeah. that's I mean, you're the seeing it every moment. day you come like, in and you're like, and there's, there's these periods where it's like very incremental and you're just like, oh, it looks the same for the past three weeks. And then you come back three weeks in one day, the 22nd day, and you're like, oh shit, this is a, this yeah. is a restaurant now. Like this is, this is really coming together. Yeah. I mean, like that seems like the fun part, but, but it's also, it also super stressful. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, if you've never, if you've never managed a project at that scale or you've never worked with, you, you deal with like. 20 or 30 different contractors. I mean, you have your main contractor, but there's so many different moving parts. And you're like 25, like yeah. 25, 26, I don't know. But you're dealing with all this grown-ass stuff for the first time. Yeah, like, and then, dude, and then nuts. oh shit, that pipe broke, or this thing is having a problem that's going to cost you an extra $10,000. And you're like, fuck, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like really exciting and also kind of like uh, an interesting process of just learning how to manage people, how to manage timelines, how to manage budgets, and and it's like uh, conducting an orchestra when you don't really, at least the first time when you don't know what the sound's supposed to sound like. But dude, you, you <laughs> but dude, you guys built something that I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say it like that, but it, it blends in with the the competition that you had there. That's why when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is corporate too. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I was yeah, like, oh, they have like a thousand <laughs> locations too, because like it blended so it blended so well in with all that competition that you had to like excel at to not be a hole in the wall to meet and right. that's why it was also surprising like you did like such a good job at that I was like this is even nicer than how they did it thank you yeah so, I mean we um we set out with this like this funny goal with our architects we wanted our first restaurant to look like our 40th of to dude you did it though yeah just like to make people feel oh if I'm debating between Chipotle and this place this isn't some random restaurant this is like something that feels like it's got a presence and in um in a funny way, there's moments where we talk about how we feel we may have overdesigned, and that like people think we're a chain. And I'm like, no, I kind of want you to know that I'm a local small business. And so we're we're trying to figure out. Uh, and I think we'd been a little bit shy to tell our story because we didn't want it to be about us. We wanted it to be about the restaurant. But trying to think about how we how we introduce little moments to remind people that, you know, we're made in DC. We are, we both live in this city and we're invested in this community and, um, and we're really proud to rep the city. You know, I saw it like you have the memorabilia and the pictures of you and your family on the walls, like where you would wait in line and stuff like that. Like now that I realize that's very strategic too, but like it's, it, that's, that should be there because I want to know that people need to know that the mega hack. I definitely has to know that shit. <laughs> You just like how I brought that all back right there? Oh, yeah, it's like... I waited an hour and a half to bring that shit back. Perfect circle. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that is nuts, man. Holy shit. So, so now that you're... How far into have you been since you opened your doors? Uh, it's been about a year and a half. Year and a half? Like, where? what are you looking at now? Like, what are... What's, what's on your radar? Like, what's on your mind about everything? Yeah, I mean, so this past year and a half has been incredible. I mean, the, the most exciting, the most challenging, just 
the most growth filled that I've, I've ever experienced. You know, it's every day is a new challenge, a new opportunity. There's no two days alike. And, and it's really forced, uh, it's forced us to grow up very quickly and forced us to, to adapt a ton. I mean, you very quickly realize that there's, you know, we have 20 or 25 people we employ and they're quite literally feeding themselves or their families based on like, this isn't just some fun entrepreneurial project anymore. This is something that is supporting the livelihood or the ability to live the life people want. And that is a huge responsibility. And, um, so where we are today, we just launched catering, which has been really exciting. Um, and we, uh, we launched online ordering and delivery platform. So we're at a place now where we're really getting our in-store operations extremely tight, uh, picking up and kicking off this catering program and trying to create a lot of scalable systems and, and really build a very strong company and team culture so that as we start turning one eye to growth, as we grow, we continue to get stronger and we've got a really strong mm. foundation that we build from. Uh, I really, I mean, people talk about bamboo, a lot of how it takes five years to root and then it just <laughs> shoots up so incredibly fast. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a lot about how we think about growth of this idea of really getting your foundation strong and then allowing yourself to grow naturally from there. So what would you say is like the most challenging part at this point? Oh, that's a good question. So, I mean, we are actually looking to grow right now. So you're looking to expand. Yeah. So we are looking to expand. So there's kind of, um, there's all sorts of new challenges in growth in terms of thinking through where we want to go, how we raise money, we're raising money again. So how do we do that? And, um, like, is it franchise model versus our own money model kind of thing? Or is it just like, we have to do it ourselves for the next few at least? Uh, so all of those questions are things that, you know, you're kind of dancing with and you're navigating uh, and you're thinking through like, Cause at first it's like, I just want to open a restaurant and then you open, you, you sort of achieve your first goal. And now it's like, okay, so we've, we've done the first thing. Now, where do we go from here? How do we build upon what we've created now and take that to somewhere new? And, uh, and there's this mapping and visioning process of where is that, that you want to take it? But dude, I imagine it's kind of dawned on you at some point that like you're potentially building something that's going to make you a bajillion dollars. Right. I mean, I can tell you're not that kind of person, but like that's had to at least cross your mind. You're like, Holy fuck. Like this could be, you know, I hate to keep bringing up the Chipotle of Indian, whatever fast casual, but like, is, does that cross your mind at all? Like that fact that you, you're, you could be building like a billion dollar empire right now. And it's just like, Holy shit. Like, uh, I mean, it's crossing my mind right now. Um, that's it's insane to me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something I've thought about with growth, but I realize that if you look, you can have your North star that you're moving towards, which is really important. But if you're only focused on that end point, mm. you don't, not only do you not enjoy the journey, which is far more important than reaching that end goal, but you also probably won't get there because you're sure. not present sure. in this moment of like, all right, if we're looking to go from one to three restaurants, you know, like Chipotle has 2,500 restaurants, you know, that's just such a huge number 
that it's, it's like, if I'm just like, if I don't get to 2,500 restaurants or to a hundred restaurants, I'm not going to be successful. It also means that they've been like refined, they've refined what they've been doing so well that they're able to even do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so it's absolutely this like, okay, that is one of our aspirations is to absolutely grow, but also to grow in a way that we're proud of. And that's a really strong company and brand that, that we're excited to share with the world. And it's like, okay, so let's, let's have that as one of our intentions to keep growing and let's do it in a way that, you know, let's stay focused on the task at hand Mm -hmm. and like, you know, set your vision, achieve it, set your vision, achieve it, set your vision, achieve it. And that's, that's the way we've been approaching it. Mm. I mean, dude, you've, you have an amazing mindset. I just want to throw that out there. Cause I'm like, in my mind, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, holy shit, dude. Like, yeah, well, and you know, so, so here's the other thing, right? I think that, uh, expectations are extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. If I, if I set out the expectation that I'm going to be a billionaire or I'm going to be a multimillionaire in two or five or whatever years. Um, and if I don't, then I'm a failure that's setting me up for failure, right? It's like, if I'm like, this is a possibility and something I'm working towards. And if it happens, fuck yeah, that'll be cool. Um, but if it doesn't, all right, fuck yeah. Like I learned a ton. We had a really incredible experience and we, we hopefully changed some people's lives along the way. And, uh, yeah, my, my thought is while we're working towards growing a great company, which to me is more important than, just earning a lot of money. Of course, Mm -hmm. that would be nice if that happens. But, um, if I, if I focus too much on that goal, I'll lose sight of what's making us great right now. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you look too much at like that possibility, it's like, you're not going to be focused on just getting what you already have perfect and amazing and making it like the best experience for everyone and making it that thing that you you always wanted. If you are only focused on like, okay, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line, you know, all right, well then let's get the shitty chicken. All right, let's get the cheap, mm, the, yeah. the, we're going to use the cheaper tomatoes. We're going to use this. We're going to use that. And all of a sudden the thing that makes it so that you're able to scale the product quality, the service quality, you know, oh, well let's have three employees instead of five because it's going to save us money in the longer run. Like, I think, I think you have to be really mindful about what you're prioritizing and what you're incentivizing and actually understanding what's going to allow you to grow. Wow, so, um, so I think the answer to your question is very much a yes. And like, yes, absolutely. That's something that's crossed the mind and what I'm excited about and, and really looking forward to is building a company that has the ability to last and that has the ability to make a, make a lot of impact, not only on the lives that we call it the squad of our, our squad, which is our employees, uh, but also to really positively impact the people that are, walking into our doors and, and hopefully be a spot which puts a smile on their face. Hell yeah, man. Respect, dude. Well, I feel like we're like naturally coming to an end here. Like it's been amazing talking to you. So just one last thing I like to ask people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you have anything to say or anything to those people who might be listening to this, who are those nine to fivers from DC? Like those people who are looking at you and be like, God damn, he did it. Like hmm. he was able to, quit his day job and, and focus on his passions. Like the people that are at their government jobs during the day and then they just want, they, they are the disconnected person. I forget what you said, but like they are that disconnected employee, a disengaged employee. And they're thinking, how can I open this restaurant? How can I start that falafel stand? How can I freaking start making my own beer? Like, what would you say to that person? Like, what would you, is there any advice or any sort of just like 
wisdom or what, what, what comes to your mind? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I mean, I think the first thing is if that's the person that's listening to this, the fact that they're seeking it out mm-hmm. in and of itself is a really positive first step. And I think it's important to take a moment to acknowledge that, right. Of like, you already clearly have that intention and you've already, you're already aware that you're not necessarily happy, which is such an important step. Mm-hmm. And that like the advice, it shifts quite a bit from a person to person thing. And I don't actually think entrepreneurship is for everyone. I think everyone has the capability to be an entrepreneur, but I, the, the lifestyle is, it's like, there's a lot of the sex appeal and a lot of the cool parts and Very it's true. extremely challenging and difficult in a lot of, a lot of ways that if you are a person that really needs stability in your life, you might not have it as an entrepreneur, <laughs> at least for X period of time. Yeah. And so, um, I'm, I'm not, I want to be mindful to not just say like, yeah, quit your fucking job, go start your own company. Um, so my, my perspective on it is that if you're in that position to surround yourself with people that inspire you, if you run into someone that is leading a life in the way that you want to be, ask them to go get coffee and talk to them and understand what, uh, what are the steps that they took? What's their journey been like? Yeah. Um, if you're unhappy in your current job before starting to really like just completely disengage, actually ask, why am I unhappy in this role? What is it that I think will make me happy? Mm-hmm. And to, I think there's a lot of micro tests that you can do. So for example, if you think there's these 10 things that I'm interested in, go talk to people that are in those 10 industries or go volunteer with an organization that's doing that kind of work and figure out like, all right, where am I lighting up? Uh, all yeah. right. And like, don't just think about it. Like test it, test it a little bit, like test those hypotheses that you're thinking about. Yeah. Get some experience in that idea or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and then also like, if you want to work, like if you're working in the government and you want to work at a tech startup, figure out, okay, start meeting people in that space. And also think like, okay, if I want to be a designer, a lot of people, like I, I absolutely believe in the, like, listen to your heart and follow your passion. Mm-hmm. And then also if your passion is to be a designer and you don't even know how to use Photoshop, you're not going to be a very good designer. And that's not to say don't become a designer, but it's, it's understand where it is that you want to go. So, so it's, I guess that's really the first question of what is that you don't want that's going to help figure out what you do want. Mm-hmm. And once you've started to have that direction, you've started experimenting. And so let's, let's follow this designer example and say, okay, I want to be a designer, a graphic designer, then understanding, okay, what are the basic skills I need to be able to enter that field? And also even within that field, what is it that I'm working towards? And it's okay if you don't know the answer, right? It's like these things continue to, to come to you with time and they continue yeah. to evolve. But talking to other people that have been in that space, figuring out what opportunities exist. And then also like, I'm all about taking the leap and committing to something that you really believe in and that you're passionate in, but also be really like, I think it's important to be realistic of, okay, I want to start a lemonade stand. Okay. If I want to start a lemonade stand, how long is it going to take me to start that? And 
am I going to have enough money to pay my rent? Yeah, right. It's like, like it's like lo- like a level of practicality. Yeah. And, uh, I think there's this romantic notion of just like, fuck it, jump off yeah. that ledge and the net Go will appear. For it. You'll figure it out. Right? And I absolutely do believe in like trust the universe. It's got your back, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And that little bit of extra time of just thinking through what does this actually look like? And, um, and what is it that I, well, and you know, another thing I would say is, a lot of people make decisions based on career, which is again, what we've been incentivized to think about because mm-hmm. society runs around money and we spend most of our time working in our careers. But I would also like for those people that are unhappy in their, their jobs, uh, to think about like their lives more holistically of, am I happy in my life? Am I happy with my friends? Am I happy in the city I live in? Yeah. Am I happy with how I spend my time? Um, the ideas I surround myself with and my job, right? Like the partnership I'm in, all of these questions and like your job is just one part of your life. It's a huge part. And ideally you can craft a life where it it all feels like one. But right now, a lot of people say, you know, why do we have happy hour on Friday? Because everyone's happy. They're out of work. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, Oh, thank God I'm done with this. Right. Living for the weekends is you're just, you're, you're backwards, man. Exactly. And then that's where most people are, unfortunately. And, and so, but I think a lot of people, they resonate with what you've done or they resonate with like, why I asked you, like, what do you have to say? Cause I feel like those yeah. people aren't just brain dead zombies. Some of them might be, or maybe they're just happy with what they do. Yeah. But I think a lot of them, this does cross their mind. And that's kind of why I asked that, you know? Yeah. And so to, so kind of to, to wrap up the thought, I would, yeah. I would just say, take time to understand what it is that you want in your life, if you could, if you could design your dream world with no limitations, nothing holding you back, not even your own mind, mm-hmm. what is it that you would design, not just for your career, though that's an important part of it, but what kind of world do you want to live in? And then start taking tangible steps to move towards it. Word. Dude, good advice right there. <laughs> good shit, man. Well, hey, man. Um, Fucking appreciate you being on the show, man. It's been it's been epic. Yeah, thanks yeah, for having me. This, super, is, this has been great. Dude, it's been great talking to you, man. I have no idea how long we've been talking. Yeah. But uh, if anyone wants to keep up with you or uh, where would you want to put po- where would you want to point them on the social medias? Yeah, absolutely. So um I am not super active on social media, though I'm starting to to dabble a little bit more. But on Instagram, I'm uh, at Sahil S A H I L one two two four. And uh, if you want to learn more about Rasa and the restaurant, our Instagram handle is at Rasa. And um, the website for the restaurant is just www.rasagrill.com. Word. And if they actually want to eat Rasa, it's in Navy Yard in Washington, Yeah, so DC. we are at First uh, and M Street Southeast, right across from Nationals Park. Word. And you guys should definitely go there. It's freaking good, man. It's freaking good. Yeah, we'd love